It was the summer of 2007. A friend of mine had been telling me about Jesus for about three years. I had started to go to church. I was even reading the Bible. And around church, I kept hearing people say things like, are they saved? Or, I was saved. Whatever they were talking about, I knew for sure that I wasn't yet saved. I didn't even know what I was in danger of. I didn't even know I was in danger. In fact, I didn't know until much later that we were talking about being saved from hell, from the wrath of God that I deserved. I didn't know until much later that every time I got high, stole something, or disobeyed my parents, to just name a few sins, I was rebelling against the living God. I was stacking up wrath that would fall on my head unless I was saved. It turns out that there was an emergency. Well, that summer, as I heard and read the word, I was changing. All of a sudden, I wanted to get saved. I remember thinking, can someone just tell me how to get saved already? Well, one day, someone did, in an unexpected way. I was driving to Montreal, listening to a song by Lecrae, when I heard these words. To get saved, Romans 10.9 is all you got to do. So I opened up my Bible and read that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That day I confessed that Jesus is Lord and believed in my heart that God raised him from the dead. And that was the day that I was saved. This is my story in a nutshell. And if you're a Christian, you have a similar story. Though each of us is unique and God uses many different people and situations to bring us to salvation, if we've been saved, there are certain things that will always hold true of us. Someone told us about Christ, and we believed in him as our Lord and Savior, right? The way the message comes to us varies from person to person, but if we believe in Jesus, that's because someone, uh, God sent someone to tell us about him. Today, I'd like to begin a short series called Closing with Christ. Closing with Christ means we come to that turning point when we Call on Jesus to save us. And my prayer is that God may use me in your life as he used Lecrae in mine to help you close with Christ and be saved. I'd love to be the person in your life who God sends to tell you about Jesus. We're going to look at a part of the Bible that answers some of the most basic human questions at the core of Christianity. Questions like, how do we get saved? What is the right way to God? How can I take it? And why doesn't everyone believe this? And to do this, we'll look at the book of Romans. Romans is about the gospel, and the gospel is the good news of God's plan of salvation for humanity. Romans says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And it's and it says that the gospel reveals or makes known to us the righteousness of God. And though the word righteousness seems vague, it's way more important than we realize. 
when I say righteousness and when Scripture says righteousness in the book of Romans, it means salvation or being made right or declared righteous in God's eyes. Mankind tries to seek salvation or righteousness with his creator in many ways. But in the gospel, God has revealed the only right way to be made right with God. And it's not by doing that we become righteous. The gospel shows us that God actually shares and gives us his righteousness. And how does this happen? By believing in Jesus. Today I want to show you from the Bible that God only has one plan of salvation. And that's by grace through faith in Christ. There's no other way. There's no plan B for humanity to be saved. We're going to be talking about the basics of Christianity today. But what's basic to Christianity is always important and worth reviewing in Christianity. Because the basics of Christianity clash with basic human religions, reactions, and thoughts about God and salvation. What I mean is the message of Christ and salvation, what the Bible says is the message of God, of salvation, and of Christianity comes from God to us. It doesn't originate with us. It's revealed to us. Well, that summer, 15 years ago, I got saved, and now my greatest problem had been solved. I was saved, but that didn't mean that all my problems went away. I actually had new problems now. Because I was reading the Bible a lot, and I kept seeing good news and bad news right beside each other. I also saw that those, I, I saw things that were so incredibly good, like the fact that if you turn to Jesus, you'll never be separated from his love. And that encouraged me greatly. But I also saw, right beside those truths, that those who don't turn to Jesus will suffer forever in hell. They will perish. And just thinking about this hurt. Because I have a lot of loved ones who still haven't turned to Jesus. And though I'm sure the uh, living God loves them far more than I love them, I felt and still feel an inner anguish for them to be saved. Have you ever felt this way? Well, if so, I think you're in good company. Because the Apostle Paul felt the same way for his people. And we get a peek at his sorrow and anguish for those he loved dearly in the beginning of Romans 9 and the beginning of Romans 10. And I think we see from the Apostle Paul's anguish here that it's normal to be burdened for our unbelieving loved ones. And it's normal to pray for them to be saved. If we look at Romans 9 and 10, in these chapters we see that Paul prayed and desired that the people of Israel, his people, whom he loved, would be saved. But he's distressed because as he looks around and he looks at them, he sees that the majority of the Jews don't believe in Jesus as their Lord. They're stuck in a stubborn unbelief. And it's not because they didn't hear about Jesus. It's not because they lacked opportunity. In fact, they heard first about Jesus. But they're stuck in that willful unbelief. Maybe you can relate to this with your family or friends. 
You've come to believe in Jesus, and he's changed your life. So you've been telling your loved ones about him. But you look around, and it seems that most of them could care less about Christ. How do we make sense of this? To do this, we're going to look at Paul's answer in Romans 9 through 11. So if you have your Bibles, meet me in Romans 9, verse 30, which is on page 946 of the Bibles in front of you. Today we're going to see that the only right way to God is based on grace through faith in Christ. The only right way to God is based on grace through faith in Christ. First, let's pray. Father, would you please use your word to awaken, bring life, renew, and strengthen our trust in Jesus. By your spirit, may you work in wonderful ways today, bringing people to the place where they come to Jesus by faith. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so when you get to Romans 9 and 11, you've just come through the mountain peaks of Romans 8, where Paul has been meditating and circling around on the wonderful promises of God for all who believe in Christ. We're no longer condemned, and nobody can separate us from God's love in Christ. But next, Paul turns to the topic of Israel's widespread unbelief. And surprisingly, Paul is actually using Israel as a case study of mankind's hard-heartedness and unbelief. And in those same chapters, he's also using the Gentiles as a case study of God's mercy and election and faith in Christ. Paul is arguing from the Old Testament that though the majority of Israel is stuck in unbelief, this too is part of God's plan. Look at Romans 9, verses 25 to 26, where Paul is quoting from the book of Hosea to prove that God's plan was not only to call the Jews, but also Gentiles to himself through Christ. He says, those who were not my people, this is quoting Hosea, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Then in verses 27 to 29, he quotes Isaiah to prove that though most of Israel doesn't believe, there is and will be a remnant or an offspring who will be saved. And that's because God will save them and God will preserve them. So though it causes agony for Paul as he sees Israel's unbelief, it's no surprise to God. It's his very plan. But there's only one way to God for both Jew and Gentile, and that's through the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, the first thing we see in this text is that the only right way to God is not based on works. Now again, if you look back there to Romans 9, look at verse 16. It says that being made right with God or being saved or put in a right relationship with him depends, verse 16, not on human will or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. So belonging to God, being his people in right relationship with him, doesn't depend on our ethnicity or efforts. 
It depends on God who shows mercy to us. Now, even when we're talking about Israel's salvation, the Bible is clear that salvation isn't based on pedigree or performance. In other words, nobody gets saved because they're Jewish. And Paul is showing this from the Old Testament, which were the Hebrew scriptures. And he uses Israel as an example of unbelief. And Paul, um, and, and, but I want you to say, I want you to see, and I, I don't want you to take yourself out of the equation here, okay? He uses Israel as an example of unbelief. Sure, he does. But what is true of the Jews is true for us Christians too. Proximity to God doesn't mean that we believe in God, right? Nobody gets saved because they grow up in a Christian home or went to church, though those are good things. People get saved because God shows mercy to them. Why do you think God saved you, friend? Was it because you chose Jesus or because Jesus chose you? Does it depend on you or on God who shows mercy? Let that settle while we look at verse 30. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith? But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. As if. Paul likens salvation to a race here. He uses words in this text like succeed, reach, attain, and pursue. But what's interesting is that he's arguing, as we saw in Romans 9.16, that salvation doesn't come by human will, effort, or exertion. It comes through God's mercy. So in a counterintuitive way, we're being told that those who win or get salvation and get saved aren't the ones that work the hardest. The people that get salvation are people we didn't even see running for it. That is the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, but those who we saw running, and they were going all out. The Jews, they didn't get anything. They lost. They did not get salvation. Why? Because they were running the wrong way all the way. They didn't pursue God by faith. So the Gentiles who didn't pursue God got him, but Israel, who actually pursued God, failed to reach him and salvation. What's the problem? They pursued God in their own way. As verse 32 says, they didn't pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. As if it is not based on works. They wanted to be saved not in the way God said to be saved, which is by faith. And their resistance to God's ways would fall on their head. They wanted to work their own way up to God, and that's not an acceptable way to God. So they failed because God requires faith for salvation, not works. Now, what can be said of Israel can be said of any unbelieving person today. When we choose our own religion or choose our own way back to God, whether it's by careful morality or religious activity, no matter how hard we run, this is the wrong way to God. These are all efforts of self-salvation, and that's impossible. 
God sees these efforts to save ourselves not as well-meaning efforts, but as rebellion and resistance against him. And if we're trusting in ourselves in any way and not in Christ, we're running away from him, not to him. God has revealed in Scripture clearly that the only right way to, to, to God, the true righteousness that he accepts, is through faith in Jesus Christ. There is no other way. But if we're re rejecting that way and resisting that way, we'll fall short and we won't get salvation. So, just being sincere, or it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe, these are not true. Just being sincere is not all that matters to God. Believing the truth as it has been revealed in Jesus matters. So you can sincerely believe the wrong thing about salvation and end up going to hell. This is an emergency. We must trust in Jesus to save us or we'll never be saved. Look at verses 32 to 33. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So Christ is the salvation, sorry, Christ is the foundation of salvation. But if we reject him, being offended by his word and his ways, we'll stumble over him and miss out on salvation. So rejecting Christ is no innocent mistake or misunderstanding. Rejecting Jesus will bring shame on us. Because we will all lock eyes with Jesus on that final day. And he will judge the secrets of our hearts. And in verse 33, we get a glimmer of hope that says that those who believe in Jesus as the cornerstone of their salvation, they will not suffer shame. So we who have trusted in him will lock eyes with him and we will be declared righteous because we trusted in him. Have you trusted in him to save you? Is Jesus your savior? Or are you trying to save yourself and work your way up to God? If you've come to Jesus by repentance and faith, take this in, on the final day, your shame will be removed. God will never reject or shame those who believe in Christ. That's a promise. So the right way to God is not based on works. But this text also shows us that the only right way to God is not based on keeping the law. These are the basics of Christianity. Okay? Look at verse 1 of chapter 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Okay, so Paul is praying that Israel would be saved. He desires this. He's earnest about this. But the issue with Israel wasn't that they lacked effort or even religious zeal. 
They actually pursued righteousness by carefully keeping the law. They were strict when it came to the law. However, this was the way to self-righteousness. And that's not the way to true righteousness as God sees it. God doesn't see this as a virtue in them, but rather as an ignorance and a lack of true knowledge, as we see in verse 2. They sought salvation in the law, in keeping the law, not knowing that the law was pointing them to Christ, who would ultimately fulfill the law. The law was meant to show them their flaws and their need of the Savior. But instead, Israel sought to establish their own righteousness by keeping the law. Though they were deeply religious, they were actually rebelling against God, refusing to submit to his way of righteousness. Seeking to establish their own, they were resisting God's way of righteousness. Don't gloss over that word in verse 3. Submit. They did not submit to God's righteousness. This could be true of every unbeliever. They did not submit to God's righteousness. To submit is to be humbled and humble before God. It means we have the mindset of whatever you say, Lord. If you say I must come through Jesus, I come through Jesus. And this requires the work of the Holy Spirit to open our hearts because by nature, none of us submit to God's ways. We're rebels. We resist it. We don't want to hear it. We ignore it. We run away from his word. Human hearts are proud until the word and the spirit strike it. Would you say you submit to God and his words? On judgment day, how do you expect Jesus to judge you as righteous, as saved, as cleared, acquitted? Are you hoping that your works will outweigh your sins? If so, then like the Jewish people, you're not submitting to God and his way of righteousness. And you're running the wrong way right now. So turn to Jesus. Romans 3.20 says, By the works of the law, no human being will be justified or declared righteous in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Morality and religion have never saved a soul. Jesus is the only Savior that there is. So seek salvation in him. You won't find it anywhere else. Now look at verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Paul will also say in 1 Corinthians 1.30 that Jesus became to us wisdom from God righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So all the benefits of salvation are tied together in Christ. Without him, there is no salvation. There is no redemption. He is our redeemer, and he is our righteousness from God. But Paul's explanation of verse 4, and the distinction between the law and the gospel, will continue as we look at verses 5 through 8. Uh, but to set us up for that, let me quote from Doug, Douglas Moo, who says, Law is whatever God commands us to do. Gospel is what God in his grace gives, us, uh, gives to us. The reformers uniformly insisted that human depravity made it impossible for a person to be saved by doing what God commands. 
only by humbly accepting in faith the good news of God's work on our behalf could a person be saved. This theological law gospel antithesis is at the heart of this paragraph as Paul contrasts the righteousness that is based on doing the law with the righteousness that is based on faith in verses 6 through 13. So in, five, in verses 5 through 10, we're going to see that the only right way to God is based on grace through faith in Christ. Now let's look at verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. All right, so this verse says that those who seek a righteousness based on the law must do the commandments that the law requires. And here's the bitter pill of works-based salvation. People who are determined to find approval with God on their own are on their own. They don't live under God's grace, but under the cruel master of duty. There is no margin for error here. You must be perfect. And that's impossible. So this is a joyless, lifeless, and impossible pursuit because the law was not meant to save us, but to lead us to the one who does. This living by the commandment sums up dead religion, lifeless legalism, and moralism. And I think this is at the heart of every human merit religion in the world. Doing works. And this is the wrong way to God. Yet there is another way. There is a right way to God. In verse 6, we see the difference between so-called righteousness and real righteousness. The righteousness from keeping the law that is not real righteousness and the righteousness that comes by faith in Christ, which is real righteousness. Look at verse 6 to 8. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. So this section is contrasting uh, faith and unbelief. Okay, It says that what is required for salvation has been revealed in Christ and is accessible by faith. We respond to Jesus by faith in the written or preached word of God, here called the word of faith. Through imperfect, stumbling human beings preaching the gospel, Christ is accessible to mankind. And we, when we hear it, are responsible to believe in him when we hear him speak in his word. Now, what are we to make of verses 6 and 7, bringing Christ down and bringing Christ up? What's this all about? Well, Paul is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 30. So uh, we'll take a look at that. You don't have to flip there. But uh, Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 through 14 says, For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it too far off. 
It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over to the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. All right, what's going on here? Doug Moo explains this passage as well. He says, as God brought his word near to Israel so they might know and obey him, so God now brings his word near to both Jews and Gentiles that they might know him through his son, Jesus Christ, and respond in faith and obedience. Because Christ, rather than the law, is now the focus of God's revelatory word, see chapter 10, verse 4, Paul can replace the commandment of Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 through 14, with Christ. Wow, you're holding up very well. What's going on here? Paul is correcting the unbelieving excuses in Israel and in us all. We dodge, we try so hard to dodge the bullets of God's word all the time, don't we? You know, requiring that God cater to us by giving us more than what's written in his word. Uh, Maybe we've said things like, I'll believe in Jesus if I see him. You know, as though he owes us something. These are the modern words of unbelief. But that is not a valid excuse. God has made himself known in Christ. So we dare not ignore him acting like he's got more explaining to do. He's revealed himself to us in the word about his son. He's come near to us in the word about his son. And there is salvation in no other name under heaven among men by which we must be saved. The word is so near, friends, that all we need to do to clinch our salvation is to confess that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead. This is how we trigger our salvation. This is how we seal the deal. Look at verses 9 through 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. As you already heard my story, Romans 10 saved my life. And if you're here today and you're not yet saved, I pray it saves yours too. These words open the door of salvation to me. So I love and cherish these words. Now, what is the significance of saying or declaring with our mouths and confessing that Jesus is Lord? What's what's the big deal here? Jesus is Lord. Uh, Maybe at times you've heard people say things like, if you can show me a Bible verse where Jesus says, I am God, I'll believe in him. Have you heard that? Well, once again, God requires faith for salvation. And us requiring more from him is not a virtue or an asset. It's unbelief. He has made himself clear and accessible through his son. But just so we're clear... To say and believe that Jesus is Lord is not saying less than he is God. To recognize him as Lord is to recognize him as the God who revealed himself in Scripture. The true God of the Bible revealed himself as the Lord, right? 
Do you remember the time that God revealed himself and his name to Moses at the unburning bush? It's in Exodus 3.13. It says this, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So here we get three forms for God's name. I am who I am, I am, and the Lord, or Yahweh. And God tells Moses, the Lord is the name by which he wants to be remembered forever. In the ESV, the term uh, Lord is used or found 7,776 times. <laughs> Obviously, this is something scripture is emphasizing as important. Theologian John Frame uh, even says that the lordship of God is a central theological theme in scripture. I would not argue with him. So to say that Jesus is Lord is not to use a lesser term than God. To say that Jesus is Lord is to rightly recognize him as the true God of Scripture who revealed himself to Moses, the creator of all things, the God of Israel, the second person of the Trinity, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the self-sufficient, self-existent one, the I am who I am, Yahweh. That's what we're saying when we're saying Jesus is Lord. He is God Almighty. Doug Moo says in the Old Testament, of course, the one on whom people called for salvation was Yahweh. Paul reflects the high view of Christ common among the early church by identifying this one with Jesus Christ, the Lord. He is Lord. He is Lord. So when you say that Jesus is Lord, you're pledging allegiance to the Lord God himself the second person of the Trinity. He is Lord and he is risen from the dead. He is alive and well today. You must believe in your heart to be saved that Jesus is Lord. And out of the heart we speak. But we also must believe that he rose from the dead. Now why is the resurrection emphasized in Romans 10.9? I think this shows us how foundational Christ's resurrection is to Christianity. I don't think it's the only thing we must believe. I think it connects us with many other things like his atoning death. But it also implies he died and rose again to save us from the wrath to come. He is alive. It also implies his death for our sins. So he rose from the dead. Do you believe that? Do you believe he's raised from the dead, that God raised him from the dead? Have you been saved the word of Christ is near you. Christ is offered to you. He is close. Come to him. Confess that Jesus is Lord. Believe that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. He's freely offered to you. God has clearly revealed what we must do to be saved. It's trusting in Jesus. And if you believe in him, You'll be justified, verse 10 says. That is, God will declare you righteous. 
you in right standing with God. You've been made right with God. You've been saved by faith. So God's plan of salvation is offered to all. It's not for a certain people group or class or personality type. Nobody is barred from the table of grace. All are invited to come to Jesus. And this is the last thing we see in this text. The only right way to God is offered to all. Look at verse 11 and 12. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. So here's the free and clear offer of the gospel. And the, in, the same invitation is held out to Jewish and non-Jewish people through Christ. Access is granted to all who come to Christ. What Christ has done for his people is offered to all people. And we become Christ's people by receiving this generous offer of salvation. The idea of shame here again is related to the final judgment. Nobody who believes in Christ for salvation will lose their salvation and be damned to hell. Rather, they will be enriched by the riches of his mercy forever. I love those words in verse 12. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing, I love that word, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. So God doesn't begrudge us when we call on him to save us. He loves to save us. There's a bounty of mercy and riches in him because he is the same Lord to all and he is the Lord of all who call on him both Jew and Gentile. Aren't you glad? God says he'll save us if we call on him. This is his word. Look at verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you've ever said, I'm too bad for God to save me, read this verse until you believe it. Here's our confidence that believing in Jesus isn't wishful thinking or an empty hope. Here's how we close with Christ. We confess that Jesus is Lord. We believe that God rose, raised him from the dead. And we call on his name. These are all expressions of faith. And the Bible says, the righteous shall live by faith. So if you were to look at the religions of the world, you'll see that there are, there are basically Two ways that human beings seek salvation or righteousness with God. There are many religions, but basically we can boil it down to two ways mankind tries to be saved. It's by works or by grace. Only one way to God is right. Which one are you taking? God says the right way is offered to all by grace through faith in Christ. Call on the name of the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. That's God's word and promise. And that's the only right way to God. Have you settled the matter? Have you been saved? Have you closed with Christ? I pray so. Let's pray.